You can open up to Luke chapter 9. We're going to be there uh, throughout most of this morning as we go through the Word together. It's a pleasure to be able to be with you, be praying for Pastor Brooks and his family as they travel. And um, just take a little bit of time away with family and um, be praying for them as safe travel as they come back. And um, we're going to be looking at Luke 9, and we're going to start in verses 18 in just a minute. Uh, so thank you for being with us today. We, um, we truly want to lift up the Lord today. We truly want to draw into His presence and into His glory. And this verse, these verses we're going to look at are going to help us to talk about and see what that looks like and to see a picture of, of what Jesus showed to His disciples on that day. So we're going to draw into that in just a minute. Before we get started, I wanted to, um, wanted to um, ask you, you may have seen back a couple of years ago, there was um, maybe about 10 years ago, there was a, a game show that had only about 12, uh, 12 episodes. We tried a little version of it here once for a little couple's night that we did, and the, the game show was called Identity. And I don't know if any of y'all were here that night, but we did a game with that where we had couples and at the tables we had people to submit something about themselves, something that was unique that probably no one else at the table would know about them. Now we told them, of course, keep it clean, you know, and keep it calm, but you know, just submit something about yourself that's unique that no one else would probably know that might be surprising. It could be an achievement. It could be a characteristic. It could be something that you had done, a job that you had had or some place you had been that most people probably wouldn't know about you, and, and most people probably wouldn't have that. Now, if we were to play that game and you, you, you offered things that were, that were kind of basic, you know, it would be pretty hard to figure out who it was. But as we went around the tables and people had their best, we asked them to, to nominate their favorites at the table, the most surprising, unique attributes. We had someone in the room that night who had worked for the Army, and if I remember correctly, he had once been responsible for the nuclear codes to missiles. And that was kind of surprising. I knew he had been in the Army, and I knew that he had that background, but the nuclear codes to missiles, I mean, that was a pretty big deal. Uh, until that time, I had never met anyone. We had someone in the room, and actually I think it was Rebecca, who had sang at Carnegie Hall. And before that time, I had never met anybody who had sang at Carnegie Hall. And then we, we brought Adam on, and he sang at Carnegie Hall too. So, and then he took me, and I got to go sing at Carnegie Hall, which was kind of cool. So it, there's a lot of different venues that they bring into Carnegie Hall, but it was a unique characteristic. It was something unique. I mean, of course, we all have things like we might be able to say, I had a home, I had a home run in seventh grade. You know, maybe that's something I could say. You know, actually, I didn't hit a home run in seventh grade. I can't say that. I wish I could, but, you know, maybe that's something that for you is a unique characteristic, something that stands out, something that is a part of your identity. And it's things that not everybody might not know about you at first, but eventually as you get to know them, as you spend time around them, it's things about yourself that you can be able to share with them. Today we're going to be looking at the real Jesus. We're going to be looking to see what was his identity, because even those closest to him sometimes didn't always know things about him just yet. See, he kept some things back. He kept some things aside. We see that part of the reason he did that was because he had a purpose. And he had a plan. We're going to talk about that purpose and that plan that he had. And how as he held that back, he held it back for God's timing and in God's place and his um, plan that he was going to work out. So we're going to look in and see who the real Jesus is. Jesus calls for us to know him for who he really is. He wants us to truly know him, to truly know exactly who he is. And so the great thing is, is that we've got the benefit that disciples didn't have. We've got the whole counsel of God's word. We've got 66 books and letters and, and testaments of things that happen, the true statements of things that happen that help us to see the true picture of how all of God's Word point to who Jesus is. So today we're going to jump right into God's Word. We're going to look at who He is and how He wants us to really know Him. So follow along with me. We're going to be in Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 18. It'll be up on the screen if you've got your Bible. Feel free to follow along there as well. And we're going to jump right in and, and, and unpack this idea of who the real Jesus is. 
In Luke chapter 9, verse 18, it says, Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And Jesus, we're talking about Jesus, Jesus asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say, Elijah. And others, that, that one of the prophets of old has risen. And then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. I'll give you a little bit of context here of where this conversation picks up. If you go back and read earlier in Luke chapter 9, and, and remember that in the original, that there weren't verses, there weren't chapters, so sometimes you even have to go back a few chapters to really see the broad context of what's happening. In Luke chapter 9, we see that there were many people who were starting to ask this question of who is Jesus and what is he really about? There were crowds that were following after him. In Luke 7 and 8, we see amazing miracles that he was doing, some which only the closest disciples even got to see firsthand. We see that Jesus was doing amazing things. People started following after him more and more. And we see in Luke chapter 9 that he even is able to now send out his 12 disciples, his 12 apostles, as he'll call them, to go into the world and to reach people and to do many of the same things that he was able to do. They're going and they're teaching on the kingdom. They're going and they're seeing people healed and the sick coming well and people who were oppressed coming to freedom. And so we see amazing things happen around Jesus and around those closest to Jesus. So people start asking questions. People are wondering. We see that even the rulers of the land, it says that, that Herod Antipas, the Tetrarch, that basically means he was a governor. He was a regional governor for Galilee there. And Herod begins to even ask the question, who is Jesus? He heard rumors. The rumors echo what we just read that many people were saying, well, well he's, he's John the Baptist. He's come back to life. Well, Herod says, I don't think he's John the Baptist. I killed John the Baptist. You go back and read in the Gospels and you see how Herod, he had a problem with John the Baptist because John the Baptist called him out for his sin because he took a wife who belonged to his, his brother. He took his brother's wife and they, they created a new marriage. And so Herod didn't like it when John the Baptist called out of his sin and called him to repentance. And Herod would, would take John the Baptist, put him into prison, and then on the request of his wife, have him sentenced to death. So Herod says, I know it's not John the Baptist. I saw him die. Then others say, well, it's one of the other prophets that's risen again. It's, it's one of the prophets come back to life to come and to testify of the Messiah, the one who's to come. And, and so Jesus is seeing that his disciples are saying the same things that everyone else is saying. People are talking about these things. The other thing we see in Luke chapter 9 is we see that Jesus feeds the 5,000. Here's a little Bible trivia for you today. You can take this with you. If you want to throw this out to other you know, Christian friends who like to play a little Bible trivia, what is the one miracle that appears in all four Gospels? It is the feeding of the 5,000. Now, the Gospels are very similar, have a lot of parallels. I was talking to some guys this week about that. There's often very similar things and some things that are unique to each Gospel, that only one Gospel would have an, a record of that instance or that occurrence. Well, the Gospel writers, all four, saw the value of seeing that Jesus feeding the 5,000 people was such a remarkable miracle that all four of them were led by the Spirit to put that in there, to include that. And in Luke 9, we see that over 5,000 people would be fed by Jesus as he would break the bread, as he would break the fish, and he would divide them up. And amazingly, miraculously, 5,000 people, and as it says in Matthew, that 5,000 men plus women and children, maybe up to 10,000 people, would be able to be fed that day. It says in John that the people there that day wanted to make Jesus their king. I mean, imagine if you were in a desolate place and you were able to get a free meal and, and see it happen in an amazing way. You got your belly full and there were even 12 baskets left over. How you might feel, especially if you lived in a land where you're oppressed, perhaps where you're poor, in a place where you don't know where the next meal may be coming from. Many of us have been in mission contexts where we, we just 
our hearts break over the hurt that people are facing. And we read of Jesus' words, and his heart would break for the people that he encountered. And he wanted to reach them, and, to, and sometimes he would meet those physical needs, whether through miracles or doing amazing things like this, where he fed them and brought food to them. And they, they were thinking, this is the Messiah. This is the one. This is the one chosen by God and, and appointed by God. And they wanted to make him the king. But Jesus had a bigger plan that went beyond the immediate, that went beyond the right now. And he asked his disciples, he says, who do you say that I am? It's a very crucial point where he says, what do people say about me? But who do you say that I am? Remember, these are the 12 disciples. It tells us clearly in Luke 9, 18 that he is just with his closest. And he's asking them, what do you say about this? Well, Peter, being the spokesperson that he is so often and led in the Holy Spirit, as it would say over in Matthew, he speaks up and he says that, that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Christ of God. The word Christ here is the same word that in the Hebrew we might call Messiah. Both of them mean the anointed one. I want you to get the picture, if you know much about your Old Testament, to think about David. And when Samuel would come to David, and he would be looking for the next king, and God would lead him to the young boy David, and he would anoint him with oil. And it says there that the Holy Spirit came on David, and from that day on, he was filled with the Spirit. He was led by the Spirit. That's the anointing. That's the Messiah. The same word for anointing someone with oil is the same word that would then be translated in the noun to Messiah, to the anointed one the chosen one. It's one who's been chosen by God, anointed with his Holy Spirit. It's not that the olive oil does any magic. It's the Holy Spirit that does all the work. And he's anointed with the Holy Spirit. In Luke, we see earlier that Jesus Christ himself had a moment like this at his baptism. If you look back in Luke 3, you see that the the baptism, the Holy Spirit would appear like a dove and come down on him. And the Lord would say, the Father would say, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So we would see Jesus Christ being anointed in that way and his ministry beginning with an anointing from the Lord. And so when his disciples said, you're the chosen one, they they knew a little bit of what that meant. But tied up within that for them, there were all these ideas of what that meant. They had all these views of what the Messiah would look like and they had all these perspectives. And we're going to talk about that more in just a minute. But they had all of these ideas of what the Messiah would be and who the Messiah would be and what he would come to do. What the chosen one, the Christ, would come to do. You know, the funny thing about identities, and often we see these secret identities most when we're reading comic books or watching cartoons. Growing up, how many of y'all like to watch superhero comic books or cartoons? Anybody? Yeah. So growing up, my favorite, I don't know why, early on, later on in middle school, maybe because I got a little older, I liked Batman, but growing up, my favorite was Superman. I mean, I started with Superman. It made it even better by the time I was six and I had to wear glasses because, you know, glasses are not cool for a six-year-old. But if Superman could wear glasses as Clark Kent, and still be cool, then, you know, that made it a little bit better. When I was little, I would take blankets, small blankets, probably ones my mom had wrapped up around me when I was a baby. I'd tie them around my neck and run all over the house and run into furniture as I was doing that. I was Superman. You know, that was my favorite to be Superman, to try to be Superman. And one of the craziest things about Superman, though, if you think about it, one of the most illogical things, I mean, Spider-Man has a full costume. You don't know who Peter Parker is. Batman's got a hood, and half the time you can't even see his eyes. I mean, he is totally blacked out. You can't see who Batman is. Most of the heroes that we see, other than maybe Superman and Wonder Woman and a few others, you don't see who they are so easily. You would think, you would read the comics, you'd look in the cartoons, and you see, you think, how do these people not know who Superman is? I mean, he puts on glasses, he's Clark Kent. Takes off glasses, he's Superman. It's like, how do they not get it? 
It can only work in a comic, right? It can't work in the real world. How do they not get that he's Superman? And whether he's got the glasses on or not, he's always Superman. His identity never changes just because he puts glasses on in a suit. Just because he shows off the big S and takes the glasses away and his hair has a little extra curl in it doesn't make him more Superman. He was always Superman from the beginning to the end. He stayed Superman. That was his identity. Clark Kent was what everybody else saw. But Superman was always there. His true identity never changed. What we're going to see in Luke 9 is that the, the disciples were starting to see the truth of Jesus' identity. While the crowds would see miracles, the crowds would see amazing things, the crowds would see a great prophet and think that maybe even a prophet of their day, John the Baptist, was risen from the grave or Elijah or someone from old was back again. They would go to all these links. They didn't quite see that he was the Messiah. They didn't quite see the truth. And it's that you look at it, you think, how could you not see? I mean, look at the amazing things he did. Look at the amazing things he would say and the authority he would speak with. How could they not see that Jesus was the Messiah, but his disciples who were closest were seeing it? Part of the reason they didn't see, I think, is because they weren't always seeing everything that we see. We get to see it from beginning to end. We get the whole, the whole book. They also didn't get to see everything that the disciples would see. They didn't get the front row seat to many of the things. And even some of the disciples didn't get to see everything that some of the others would. And we'll see that in just a minute. C.S. Lewis would say, when we look at Jesus Christ and the claims that he makes about himself, you've probably heard this before. I think Brooks has even read this quote before here. In Mere Christianity, it says that when we look at Jesus Christ and we see who he said he was and what he said about himself and the things he did, we look at him, we have to come to a conclusion. In our world today, there are many people who are a lot like the people of that day who missed who Jesus was. There are people who want to say, well, he was a great teacher. He was a great prophet. He was a great leader for his day. He was such a good moral influence. He was such a great perspective to have in this world. If we could just have more people who showed that love and that kindness. And they miss the fact that Jesus is Lord. They miss the fact that he is the chosen one, the one anointed by God, chosen by God, and empowered with his Holy Spirit to do the work that God called him to do. C.S. Lewis would say, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I am ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, is what some people would say. He said, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's what some would say. I accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. Lewis would say, that is one thing that we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. Hear that again. A man... A man who was merely a man but said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He couldn't consistently say what he said if he wasn't who he was. Lewis continues, he would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says I am a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else he's a madman or something worse. Some people want to say Jesus was just a great moral teacher. He was just a great influence for us. He was just one we can look at, and they totally missed the point of who he truly was. Lewis would say we can't logically and, and intellectually honestly say that Jesus was just a good man. We can't just say he was a good moral teacher. If we look at who Jesus was and we see what he said and then we say that he wasn't the Son of God come to save the world, if we want to go to that direction that they would go, then we have to either conclude that he was a liar who would present himself in one way yet be another, 
or he was a madman. Jesus Christ was who he said he was. His true identity was clear. He truly came to be the anointed one. The takeaway I want you to get today from this is the closer we walk with Jesus, the more we truly know him. If you're taking notes, I'll give you time to write that down. You'll see it on the screen. The closer we walk with Jesus, the more we truly know him. And it sounds like a very basic concept, I know. Such an easy point to think about. Well, of course, the closer we walk with Jesus, the more we truly know him. But think about how many people in Jesus' day completely missed who he was. Think about how many people in our day completely miss who Jesus is. The closer we walk with Jesus, the more we truly know him. If we want to know Jesus Christ, we have to get close to him. His disciples, they only came to the truth of his real identity when they walked hand in hand and step by step with Jesus Christ, when they followed close after him. We'll find out that it wasn't just the 12, there were more who would follow after him and more who were following in his steps who wanted to know him. And those would be the ones who would truly see who Jesus is. They would truly know him in a real way. How we answer the question of who Jesus is makes all the difference in this world for this life and for our eternity. To truly answer this question requires for us to come close to him and experience his grace and glory. When we respond in faith, we begin to learn what a real relationship with him will look like. So the closer we walk with Jesus, the more we truly know him. We see that the disciples would, would go on from here to understand more of who he truly was. Let's look back at Luke 9. and Let's see what his next words were. So he says, Peter answered, you're the Christ of God. Well, it says in Matthew that, that Jesus would tell Peter that this knowledge didn't come from man. This didn't come from flesh and blood. This didn't just happen from watching, disciple, watching disciples follow Jesus or watching miracles happen or seeing things happen. This knowledge came from God himself. Jesus would say. In Luke 9, we read on that he goes on to clarify them for them exactly what the Messiah would be. For them, the Messiah they expected would be a king, would be a conquering king, one who would come and, and take over the Romans, one who would come back and bring the nation of Israel back to where they had hoped it would be. That was the Messiah they were looking for. That was the chosen one that they were expecting. But Jesus would clarify for them to help them see that his plan was bigger than what they imagined and what they expected. In Luke 9, verse 21, he says, he, he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one. Going back to the verse before, that, that he is the Christ of God. He said, don't tell anyone this. That sounds counterintuitive to us, that Jesus would tell his disciples, don't talk about this. I mean, if he is the Christ of God and those closest to him have seen it for themselves, why wouldn't he want everyone to know? Well, he has a bigger plan that he's unfolding, and that plan leads to the cross, and we're going to see that right here. He says, he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, that he is the Christ of God, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So if you were imagining a king who would come and take over the nation, who would come and bring peace and order back, that that was the Messiah you were looking for. And then Jesus says, This is the Messiah I have come to be. You'd have a lot of disappointment right now. He makes it clear that you can't say this to anyone because what's going to happen to the Son of Man, a reference back to Isaiah, a title that Jesus would often call himself by. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. He lays out the complete plan of where he's going. Imagine you had these hopes of a Messiah, of a chosen one who would be the king. And now he has told you about a victory that only comes 
through what looks like defeat. How would you feel? What would your perspective be? I mean, would you want to stop and say, hey, wait, wait, I, I don't think that's the plan. In fact, we read in, in Matthew that Peter said that. He said, no, 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 Lord, that can't happen. So the same man who Jesus would say, this knowledge came from heaven above, from the Father himself, the same man would then turn around and say, Jesus, no, 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 your plan is not the plan. We know it's not the plan. And Jesus would turn and call him Satan and say, get behind me. Sometimes we look at Jesus and we look at his plan and we think, surely we could have written this a better way. We think when we look at our lives and the plans that God's called us to, that we think we could rewrite it and make it a better, better way. But what does it mean if Jesus is the Christ? Even though they were looking for this Messiah, even though they were looking for this king who would come and bring order, Jesus had a different plan. He had a victory that would come by way of what would look like defeat. His plan was distinctively different than what they would look for. It wasn't conquest. It wasn't overcoming the enemies. Instead, it was submitting to the Father's will, even to the point of the cross. Plans can be a tricky thing. We've got out here in our lobby these little guides that help you get around. And I was talking with our ministry assistants as we were revising them and editing them. Um, thankfully, all of our grow groups have come back now. And so I could update the schedule and show that everybody's back on property. And I could show where everybody was. We were even changing some things, making it color-coded. And the funny thing was, was many of our ministry assistants, they said, well, the hardest part for me is this map. They said, I can look at that map all day, and this doesn't look like our building. I mean, these are ladies and, and, and people in our office who walk these halls every week, way more than most of us do. And they're all over this place, setting up things and making sure everything's ready for ministry. And they say, I look at that map, and it doesn't really make sense to me. Now, other people, you look at an architectural drawing or a floor plan, you see it, and it's like you can just get into it. It's like when you stand there that you can see exactly what it's going to look like and how it's going to be. This is such a need that you can see that new technologies are coming where people can experience in, in augmented reality. They can start to see what an architectural plan is going to look like in 3D rendering and even put on virtual glasses and be able to see what that's going to look like, what this is going to be. Because so many people can't quite see the plan from the, the drawing on the page. We need to unlock the plan and be able to see it clearly. Jesus had a plan for redemption that they didn't see right away. If they had looked back, they might have remembered some things that were there. In Isaiah 53, there's four different passages in Isaiah where he refers to the suffering servant, as we call him, the servant who would suffer for his people. In Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6, just listen along. I don't have it on the screen for you, but I want you to hear this. It says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For the people of Israel, they didn't always understand who this suffering servant would be. We read in, in the Gospels and throughout the New Testament these words from Isaiah and other chapters where the suffering servant is described. And it says clearly that Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy, that he came to be that suffering servant. He came to be the one who would take the punishment for our sins, the punishment that he did not deserve, and he would go silently to the cross so that he could die in our place and take the punishment that we deserved and give us his grace. The suffering servant was the plan that he had all along, the plan that God the Father had instituted and put in place way back in the days of Isaiah. And he was coming to be the suffering servant. While they expected a conquering king, they didn't quite see 
what the suffering servant would do. You know, over time, things help us to understand what's going on and, and get to know each other. Time is such a crucial, important part for relationships. The takeaway I want you to see from this is that the longer we follow Jesus, the clearer his plans become. The longer we follow Jesus, the clearer his plans become. While you're writing that down, if you're taking notes, I just want you to think about it. The longer we follow Jesus, the clearer his plan becomes. They didn't see the suffering servant. They didn't understand where his cross would be or what he would be leading them to. But as they followed him longer, they started to see and understand through his words and his actions what his plan would be. Think about it. The people that you know, people that you've known for years. I have known my wife since I was nine years old. Now, we didn't get married at 10, you know, of course. So I've known her since we were nine. We didn't date until we were 17. And I realize now that was a good thing. If we had dated at 15, we probably wouldn't have been together. But, you know, at 17, when I was finally growing up a little bit, then she said she had some time to talk to me. So, but I've known her since we were nine. Best friends through middle school. Back when people used to talk on the phone, that's, that's what those phones are for, you know, believe it or not, not just for texting. But back when people used to talk on the phone, when I was in middle school, that's what we did. Back when we talked on the phone, I'd call on the corded phone, you know, and I'd call before 10 because that was when we needed to talk. And we were just friends. We weren't even dating. Everybody was like, oh, y'all are, y'all, when are y'all going out? No, we're not going out. We're just friends. We're getting to know each other. You know, it, it, she's my friend. She was one of my best friends from the time we were probably 11, 12, and on up in to the time before we dated. When we started dating, we didn't officially date right away. At first, we started talking. I don't know if people still say that or not. That's what we used to say. You know, if you weren't going out yet, you weren't dating yet, you were just talking. Well, we were just talking. For a whole summer, we were just talking. You know, and, and by the end of the summer, I'm kind of like, well, we are, are we dating or are we talking? You know, which is this? You know, what is this? But it took a summer for us to say, we don't want to ruin a friendship as we go into a different relationship. We didn't want to go into dating and mess up best friends. We had already had some times where time and distance had changed what best friends look like for us going through high school and in different schools and different places, even different churches, things had looked different at times. But when we came back together and started talking and we started spending time together and we went places with our friends and we hung out together, that time deepened the relationship. And we started to see, hey, there is something here. We're not just friends. There's a little bit more here. Maybe we do want to date. Maybe we do want to talk a little bit more and see what's going on. Time and relationships are so crucial. Imagine if in your relationships you didn't spend any time with those who you call your closest, your closest people, your, 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 your family, your mothers, your fathers, your, your brothers, your sisters, your, your, your wives, your kids especially, and your, your wife. If y'all didn't spend time together, then the relationship changes. For some of us, like me, we've moved away from home. We, you know, we live in different places. We don't get to see family all the same time, the same way. So we have to keep up through phone calls and FaceTime, and the relationship changes. But for those that we're closest to, we make sure to spend that time together, to keep that time together, because time and relationships is so importantly connected. The longer that we follow Jesus, the more that relationship grows, the clearer his plan and his intentions towards us become. It's crucial that time in our relationship with Jesus Christ be an investment that we're willing to put in. The disciples had spent time with Jesus, and they were understanding more of who he was. But his message to them didn't stop at just saying, wait, I'm the Messiah, and that doesn't mean what you think it does, and I'm going to the cross. But he would say, and not only that, you're my follower, and that might not mean what you think it does either. He would tell them, as we read in Luke 9, picking up in verse 33, it says, 
And he said to all, not just the disciples, but everyone who was close to him, everyone following him, he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does a profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. See, Jesus' plan for the disciples wouldn't have been what they had expected for themselves either. His plan for them meant that it may lead to suffering, real suffering for them, real sacrifice for them as they would follow him, as they would follow him to the cross, as they would follow him past the resurrection, as they would see his church begin, but ultimately as they would have to be willing to give their lives to see this movement, this calling that he had put on them. The clearer that Jesus Christ's plan becomes, we see that it's not just a plan for the whole world, but it's also a plan for each of us individually as we follow after him. And it only happens the longer that we follow him. When we recognize that Jesus is the one chosen by God to bring redemption, we must also come to him on his terms and through his plan of redemption. Believing in Jesus is not a one-time acknowledgement that the gospel message is true. It's the beginning of a lifelong relationship that takes time and it takes intentionality to develop so that we can know clearly what his plan is for us. We'll continue on and look in Luke 9 because we'll see that Jesus gave a hint there to the disciples when he would say, some of you standing here will see the kingdom come before, before all these things are going to happen. It says in verse 20, in, in 37, I tell you truly, some standing here will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. I'm sure they were wondering, what's he talking about and which ones is it going to be? We find often that the disciples had a lot of conversations about things like that. Who's it going to be? You know, who's going to get the special time? But we find out that the days would not be long before they'd find out who these would be. It says in the verses continuing, in verse uh, 28, sorry, my eyes are playing tricks on me. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James, and he went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. Behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory in the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he had said. And as he, as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. They were afraid. And as they entered the cloud, a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. They kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. The last question that I want you to think through is, as we see who Jesus is, the disciples were faced with the question of, What am I going to do about this? What, what am I going to do? How am I going to follow through with the mission that Jesus has? We see that eight days after the words were spoken that they were taken up on a high mountain. There's different views of where this might have been. Most scholars today believe it was probably Mount Hermon, way up in the north. 
and, and one of the highest mountains in all of the Holy Land, 9,000 feet. When I read this and I see that Peter and James and John were sleeping, I'm thinking, here they go again. They're sleeping. It seems like every time they get off with Jesus by themselves, they can't keep their eyes open. We read that in the Garden of Gethsemane. They can't stay awake. But then I realized, well, if they hiked 9,000 feet up, you know, maybe that's why they were tired, you know? We don't know how long the hike took. We don't know where they got to and how they got there. And I bet, I bet the Appalachian Trail team had not blazed a path before they went. There probably weren't any chains on the way to help them get up that path. So I can't give them too much fault for being a little tired. As they're tired and as they're waking up, they start to see something happening. Something amazing was happening. They see Jesus shining in his brilliance. And we've got to get that order right as we read this. We see Jesus shining in his brilliance. They start to see the true picture of his true identity. Remember how we talked about Clark Kent and Superman and how Jesus just put his, I mean, sorry, Superman just put his glasses on. I don't believe Jesus had glasses, but Superman would just put his glasses on and he looked like Clark Kent. He was there all over. Well, Jesus Christ himself came and looked like a man. In every way, he looked like one of us. And for just a glimpse, the disciples, those three who were able to witness, to be the testimony of what happened on that mountain, they would catch a glimpse of the true Jesus, the true Messiah, the true anointed one, the one who came, who was God-made flesh, who took on our flesh and diminished himself on the outward appearance, yet still remained very much God walking among them. And all of the glory of God was shining from Jesus. It wasn't on him. It wasn't a flashlight that anybody pointed towards him. It wasn't special effects happening in the corner. It was Jesus radiating. And he looked like God himself standing before them. But they didn't quite get that it was radiating from him. They start to then see Moses. They see Elijah. How they knew it was Moses and Elijah, I think Jesus told them later. I don't think anybody had name tags. But they see Moses, they see Elijah, and they realize that this is Jesus talking with Moses, talking with Elijah. This is the one who wrote the first five books of the Bible, Moses. The one who brought us out of Egypt. The one who helped us become a nation. This is the one who, whose brother was the first priest, and from his family they interceded with God and brought us to the place where we could worship God. This is Moses. And this is Elijah. This is the one who prepares the way for the Messiah. This is the one who represents the prophets, who stands and says the word of the Lord to a nation who is corrupt and falling away. They see Moses. They see Elijah. They see the word. They see the prophets and they see Jesus Christ. And they think, great, wow, we're on to something here. Let's set up a temple. Let's make a tabernacle. Let's put tents up. Let's stay right here on this tall mountain and let's just worship right here. They wanted to sit down and stay right there. And the great thing is, is that immediately God's presence comes down in the cloud. The same cloud that we see in Exodus and in Numbers. And we see as God would come down to the mountain to speak with Moses. God came down and spoke right there to those disciples. He wasn't talking to Jesus. He was talking to the disciples. God's presence would come down in that cloud in the same way that Elijah had experienced clouds and fire. He was experiencing the presence. They were experiencing the presence of God on that mountain. And they heard the voice of God saying, this is my son. Let's go back to that slide if y'all can find it for me. I know I'm jumping around, so I have done that job up there, so I understand completely how that feels. So let's see, go back to verse, sorry, verse 35. There we go. Take a look at those yellow words we've got for you. This is my son, my chosen one. Back to the Messiah, the same word again. This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. 
God is talking to the disciples, and he is saying to them clearly, he is the Messiah. He is my son. He is God made flesh. Listen to him. If you go back and look at the baptism of Jesus, and you see that there God would have told those in the presence, and to John the Baptist especially, and to Jesus, basically he was talking to Jesus, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Here we see as he's talking, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. In his baptism, we see the pleasure of God here at the transfiguration, at the moment when Jesus' glory is revealed, we see that God is calling for his followers to listen to Jesus. And when you hear the word listen, don't just think about tuning in. Don't just think about turning on the volume and putting in your earbuds. It's not just listening casually. Listening in the biblical context is listening with an intention to obey. When he says listen, he is saying listen to what he says and do what he says. God the Father speaking to the disciples says, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him, obey him, follow him, do whatever he tells you to do. See, Peter had a great idea. He thought, let's set up a place to worship right here. We'll worship and we'll see that Jesus is now equal with Moses and Elijah and we can celebrate this and bring the nation of Israel to worship here. Maybe he thought it would just be for that moment. Maybe he thought he could start something big and Peter already knows that he's going to be the one to lead the church in many ways. Peter is is stepping in there, but it says clearly in Luke, he didn't know what he was talking about. It's almost to say, y'all forgive Peter. He, He puts his foot in his mouth sometimes and he didn't really know what he meant. He didn't know what was going on here. So God the Father would make it clear to make it clear to understand what was happening. In 2 Peter chapter 1, we read Peter recounting and remembering this and how this testimony, as it would bear out later after Jesus' resurrection and his ascension, that they were now free to clearly tell others about it. Now that Jesus' purpose and plan had been completed, in 2 Peter chapter 1, Verses 16 through 18, we read this. We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from, from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter says, I'm a testimony, I'm a witness. And and James and John were there with me that day too. They can testify of the truth of what Jesus did that day. That the glory of God came from him and we saw who he was. And that our testimony about him and the truth of the gospel is not just some cleverly made up myth, but instead it is the truth of God and it is witnessed by us right there on that mountain. That we saw the glory of God come real and come amazingly true. The takeaway I want you to get today on this is the more we listen to Jesus, the better that we hear his calling. The more we listen to Jesus, the better we hear his calling. And as you write listen in the margin, in the parentheses, you can say listen and obey. The more we listen to Jesus, the better we hear his calling. Do you want to hear from God? Do you want to know what he is saying for you? Not just his divine plan and his great plan of redemption, but also specifically what he wants for you. If you want to hear from God, You have to listen and obey. It sounds so basic, I know, but it's what God's calling us to do. When we go to uh, Cuba or the Philippines, we're surrounded by people that speak other languages. I didn't do so great in Spanish in high school. I got C's in Spanish, one of my worst classes in high school. And now I go to Cuba, and I can kind of float along and keep up with a little bit of Spanish, and, and it gets better and better every time I go. 
And I truly leave from there thinking, man, if I could just have like three more weeks here, I think I could probably get along pretty good. You know, I'm probably a little overconfident, but I feel like I could get along pretty good with my Spanish. It helps that I've got people there that understand English and they can speak Spanish too. But I feel like I can get along. The more I'm there, the longer I'm there, the easier it gets to understand and even speak the language. The more I start to hear what they're saying, the more I start to follow through and understand where we're going and what we're doing. It gets to the place where by the end of the week, they can, everybody be talking, the pastor, his wife, his family, and the, the leaders of the church, they're all talking, and we're just sitting there waiting and watching for about 10 minutes sometimes, it feels like, while they're figuring out what the plan is, and we're just listening in Spanish. We can't listen in English because they're not speaking it. We listen along, and then they turn around to tell us, and we're like, yeah, we understand. We know we're going over here, and we're doing this, we're doing that. And they're like, oh, you speak Spanish now? No, I don't, but I can understand a bit more of what you said. The longer we're together, the more we spend time together, the more we intentionally listen to what they're saying, the better that we can hear what they're saying. It sounds so basic to think about, but so often we get it so wrong. We want to hear from God, but we don't take time to listen and obey. We don't take time to put into practice the things that he's shown us clearly and to do the things that we know we're to do. When we seek God's plan to be accomplished in us and through our lives, we can sometimes get ahead of him. We can sometimes think of our own agenda We can even get ahead of his calling on us and miss out on where he wants us to go. God calls for us to stop and to listen so we can hear his voice and see where he leads. The last part I want to leave with you is to think about and to realize that too often we start our day just trying to get through it. We start the day off with a list that's already longer than we know we have hours to get the jobs done. The list is on our mind from the moment our foot hits the ground and we're going nonstop until our head crashes in the pillow. And we run through our days just pursuing our own agendas and schedules and plans and to-do list, and we don't even stop to hear from the one who has a plan for us from beginning to end. From before we were even born, that God had a plan for our lives, that he wants us to be a part of his bigger plan and his greater work. And he calls to us to stop, to be still, and to listen to him, to spend time with him alone, focusing on him, to hear from him, to not just hear it and let it pass, but to hear it and to do it, to follow through and obey him. The, the three things that I gave you, like I said, very basic. The closer we walk with Jesus, the more we truly know him. The longer we follow, the clearer his plan becomes, the more we listen, the better we hear. So basic, but so hard to apply sometimes. I'm going to leave you three words. If you don't hear anything else, get these. I'm going to give you a challenge for this week. I want you to set aside space, time, and attention. Three things that you can never get back if you lose them this week. Space, time, and attention. Set aside space for God. If you want to know Jesus, get close to him. Wherever you are today, if you do not know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then until you get close to him and respond to his call of salvation and respond in faith to his grace, until you draw close to him, you won't know him. And if you've already trusted in Jesus as your Savior and Lord, draw in close to him. Take time to be in that space with him, to experience his holy presence. I can't promise you that you're going to have a mountaintop experience like, like Peter, James, and John had that day. But I can tell you that the closer you get to God and the more you set aside time with him in that space, in his word and in prayer, the more of that space you set aside, the more of his presence you will experience. Set aside space, set aside time. If you want to understand Jesus, you have to spend time with him. This can't be just a quick look at your phone and, okay, what's the verse of the day? Or even a five-minute five-for-five video. Man, that was awesome time to get onto my list. 
This is me taking time to take God's word, to put it in my heart, into my mind, and to put it into practice in my life. We have to take the time that it's going to take. Put that on your agenda for the first part of your day. Spend the time with God to, to get to know him and understand him. And last, attention. Space, time, and attention. If you want to hear Jesus, you have to listen and you have to obey him. So take those three words, space, time, and attention. How can you give more space, more time, and more attention to the Lord this week to be able to spend time with him, experience his glory, hear his plan for you, and follow through in obedience? As Adam comes to pray for, play for us, we're going to pray as we go. And I want to challenge you, wherever you are today, to take the time as we sing, as we worship the Lord, to just really draw in close to his glory. And I want you to think, wherever you are, if you're a believer here today, I want you to pray about how the Lord would have you to set aside more space, time, and attention. Maybe you already have a great time with the Lord every day. Pray and look and see. Even the disciples who walked with him every day, they were still missing things. I truly believe that the depth of God and his glory is so great that I probably can't give him enough space, time, and attention in a day. So I want you to pray through and look at your week ahead and think on your agenda and to think, how can I set aside that space, that time, and that attention that God calls for me to give so I can hear from him, I can know him, and I can follow him. Let's pray, and then after that, we'll sing in praise. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your glory. Lord, I do pray that we will see your glory so often, Lord. Even this morning, I've been so busy and so running everywhere that it's hard to stop and just sit in your presence. Lord, we run so fast and we run so hard sometimes, Lord, and we're so proud of the day we've had and the the, the to-do lists that are done, Lord. But Lord, how often do we leave you off of the list? So Lord, we just want to give the list to you. We want to give the calendar to you. We want to give the days to you. We ask, Lord, that you draw us close to you. If there's someone here who does not know you as their Savior and Lord, draw their heart in close. Help them to see what it means to truly have a relationship with Jesus Christ, to turn over their life, to seek your forgiveness for their sins, to trust in you and the atonement you've made, the sacrifice you gave on your cross. Lord, we praise you for your glory. We thank you that, that you are so good. We thank you that you are so great. So Lord, just help us to turn our eyes to you, to focus on you, to see you for who you truly are in a world that captures so much of our attention. Help us to set aside that space and that time and focus our attention on you to be able to hear from you this week. Lord, we thank you for this time. We thank you for a chance to praise your name. In Jesus' name we pray.